morning, Providence. Let us pray. Father, great God of highest heaven, you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are God. And it's our delight to recognize that this morning, to be reminded of it ourselves in the words that we've sung. And we acknowledge this morning that you are the giver of all good things. And so we thank you for all the gifts that you have given to us. We pray, Father, that now as we open the Word, that you would receive our attentiveness as an act of worship, as an offering to you. We pray that even as we listen, that you would continue to bless us, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us by helping us to understand the things before us and to apply them rightly that we might continue to live and increasingly live lives of worship and thanksgiving to you who alone deserve it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2. This morning we will be considering this entire chapter and we will read the entire chapter together. If you would stand with me as you're finding your place there, I'll begin reading in verse 1, Leviticus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, he shall, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. 
no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall bring no leaven or any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. You may be seated. Well, when Christmas rolls around here in a few months, we'll begin to hear the usual conversations about how controversial the holiday is in a culture like ours, and certainly that's the case. But truly, with each passing year, I I don't know how the Thanksgiving holiday survives in our culture. Thanksgiving implies several things that just don't mesh with the spirit of the age. Thanksgiving is giving thanks to someone. Who are you going to give thanks to when you are the center of the universe? Now, some might want to characterize our culture as atheistic or or polytheistic, and I understand why they would do that, but I I do wonder if it would be better to label our culture as egotheistic. All things from me and through me, and to me, self as God, self as the center of all things. And if you are the center of all things, then you are entitled to everything. But thanksgiving implies that you've been given something that you did not deserve. You don't give thanks for things that you're entitled to. And our culture is entitled to everything. All of our advertising and even our government reinforces this all the time. You are entitled to health care and advertising and perfectly crispy fries and no wait in line in all of the world celebrating your identity, however you define it. And so we believe, I deserve the things that I have and I deserve the things that I want but don't have. And it is an injustice that I don't have them. So consequently, we're, we're not at all a thankful culture. And the, the Thanksgiving holiday, perhaps more appropriately, should be called, Yeah, I thought so. Or, uh, It's about time. We believers actually, we need to be really careful about these things because they, they, they do work their way into our thinking into the way that we live our lives, how we treat service workers, how we speak to our families and co-workers, how we behave in traffic, how we regard and interact with Almighty God, all things from me, all things to me, 
all things through me. We, we, we need intentional acts whereby we remind ourselves and recognize to God, you are God and I, I worship you and all things belong to you and therefore I thank you for the things that you have given to me. That is what the grain offering is all about. Leviticus turns our eyes toward the central reality of human existence, which is that we were created for fellowship with God or to abide with God. And one of the essential parts of abiding with God is recognizing who is who in this relationship. He is God and we are the worshiper. He is the provider and we are the receivers and the the thankers. Last time we considered the burnt offering or what I called the ascension offering, which pictured a life completely consecrated to God. It was an offering by which the offerer said to God, my life belongs to you and with you. This morning we focus on the grain offering by which the offerer says, you are God and I worship you. And all things belong to you, and I give thanks to you for the things that you have given to me. As we read the text just a few moments ago, you may or may not have noticed sections in the text. There are three of them in chapter 2, three sections, verses 1 through 3. Direct the offerer who would bring an uncooked grain offering as as an offering. Verses 4 through 10 give... Directions for those who would bring a cooked offering. And there were three options in that case. Those who want to bring it cooked in an oven, cooked, cooked um, on a stove, or, or cooked in a pan. And then verses 11 through 16 give some miscellaneous rules about these grain offerings. So suppose again that you are the offerer and you'll, grain that, you'll grind that grain up into a fine flour. If you're going to bring an uncooked offering, you mix the flour with oil and frankincense and both of these are costly items. You're going to mix these things up. You'll bring that mixture to the priest. If you're going to bring a cooked offering, you cook the flour without leaven. And then you break it into wafers. You sprinkle oil on that and you bring it to the priest. Now in whatever form you bring it, whether it's cooked or uncooked, the priest is going to take a small portion of that, all three of the elements, the flour and the oil and the frankincense, and he's going to offer that up in smoke as a memorial portion to the Lord. In verse 3 for the uncooked offering and verse 9 for the cooked offering, we see this familiar refrain from chapter 1, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this, this is offered for the Lord's pleasure. That's something that's consistent for these first three offerings, the ascension offering, the grain offering, and what we will look at, Lord willing, next time. The fellowship offering. Unlike the ascension offering in chapter 1, only a portion of the grain offering is offered up in smoke. The rest of it, the bulk of it, is given to the priests as a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings or, or offerings by fire is a more literal way of saying it. So what all does this mean? Well, I, I was told earlier this morning that, that, that perhaps the notes did not get uploaded to the the websites. Anybody have any problems downloading the notes? No, you got them. Some of you did. Some of you didn't. Well, if you didn't get them, I'll try to go slow and be as articulate as I can be. 
So with, with, the, with the first point here, we're going to build a definition of the grain offering. I'm going to give you a little bit of it at a time, all right? So the first part is that the grain offering was a tribute. The grain offering was a tribute. The word translated grain offering just means gift or tribute. The ESV and other translations call it a grain offering because of what it consists of in this context. But in Genesis 4, Genesis 32, Genesis 43 and elsewhere, it refers to gifts other than grain. It's just talking about a gift. So Abel's gift of, of animal flesh to the Lord in Genesis 4, Jacob's gift of many animals to Esau, the 11 brothers' gifts to Joseph in Egypt in Genesis 43, which consisted of a bunch of different kinds of things, all of them are called by this same word, just a gift or a tribute. And the word is also repeatedly used in later historical books, Judges, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, gifts of tribute from vassal kings to their overlords. And in each of these cases where we find it used, the word indicates a sign of of deference or respect from the giver to the receiver, recognizing, look, you're superior to me. So this is a gift recognizing that, that I am below you. So, so we, we should think of it as a tribute offering, recognizing that, that I am under you. We, should, we would think of it then as, as, as an element of, of praising your, your superiority. So it's a tribute offering. The great offering is a tribute offering. The next part of our definition is, of thanksgiving or praise, of thanksgiving or praise. And that that idea is going to become clearer as we continue, so I'll go ahead and give you the next part of the definition. Grain offering was a tribute of thanksgiving or praise in remembrance, in remembrance. This part of the tribute that's offered up in smoke is referred to in verse 2 and verse 9 as a memorial portion. The offerer is recognizing God as the source of all things that he has. As as the Lord is giving these directions to the the Israelites, they're they're eating manna every day. God gives them their food all the time. They're completely dependent upon him. God has given everything to them that they have. The offerer is giving back a portion, remembering that everything actually belongs to him. The priest is doing the same thing. We'll talk more about this later, but the priest exists. He lives on these these gifts that the people bring. So this offering is how the priest eats. And he's taking a portion then of what the Lord has provided to him through the offerings of the people. And he's offering a portion of that up in smoke to the Lord. He too then is saying, look, all of this offering, this is is yours, Lord, but I'm giving a piece of, of it to you, recognizing your goodness to me by providing for me. The idea then is that I'm so mindful that everything that I have is from you, that I'm giving a portion back to you in recognition. And that is likely the reason that this is coupled with the the rules for the offering of first fruits at the end of the chapter. Some of you may have noticed when we read a few moments ago that, that he speaks about the offering of first fruits toward the end. The, the, the first fruits is essentially saying that my harvest, everything that I have, is given to me by the Lord. And again, remember, the people, they're still eating manna from heaven. So they're like, 
Harvest, that's right, we're going to the promised land. When we get to the promised land, everything that we have, even that land is going to be given to us. And so the produce of the ground is going to be from the Lord. And the Lord is saying, when you get to that land, that land is going to give fruit. That's from me. And the Lord gives instructions in Deuteronomy 26 about how to offer that first fruits offering. I'm going to read that to you. The Lord even tells the people what to say as they're offering that first fruits offering. This is Deuteronomy 26.9. This is what you should say when you're bringing this, this first fruits offering. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, Lord, have given me. And then he goes on to say, And you shall set down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner is with you. When you receive this good from the Lord, verbalize the goodness of that gift and the goodness of this God and express thanksgiving and joy by giving back the first and best to Him. Now, we tend to think of this, we tend to conceive of this in terms of 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 dollars and cents because none of us are, are farmers. Most of us aren't. I encourage you to, 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 to think about this in other terms. What do you really value? Just try to put yourself in, in their shoes. What is it that you really value? What would it be like to consciously receive that thing that you value from the Lord and in joyful recognition of His sovereignty, His goodness in providing that for you, to give back the best of it, the first and best of it to Him? You youngsters who play video games, those of you who, who, who receive from your folks that video game time, any of you have a video game time that your parents give to you? You conceive of that as God giving you video game time, perhaps, right? God is the giver of all good things. Now, what if, 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 if you thought, God is so good in giving me this time on my video games or the TV or my electronics, I'm going to turn that on. I'm going to turn on my Fortnite or whatever it is. And I'm just going to let that, that welcome screen or, or, or that whatever that screen's called. I don't play these things. What's that called? The foyer? Do they call that the foyer? What, what, what is it? Title screen. I'm going to turn on that title screen, and I'm just going to burn that title screen for 20 to 30% of whatever time my parents have given me as an offering to the Lord in recognition. The Lord has given me this time, and just to recognize God as the giver of all good things, I'm just going to let that burn. Oh, Lord, you're good to me. It's just an idea of what the first fruits is. I'm not suggesting that you do that. You don't have to do that. But that's just what we're talking about when we talk about the first fruits. God has given me this good thing, and I'm going to give the first and best of it back to Him. In verse 14, the Lord couples this grain offering with the first fruits offering, and He notes that your first fruits could be brought as a grain offering, as this kind of super grain offering, where you are praising God as God, and you're giving thanks all at the same time. And so there are, there's special instructions for that. That grain offering that needs to be roasted first and then crushed and treated with oil and frankincense. Again, a portion of that's going to be burned up as a memorial to the Lord. 
The connection between these two indicates that, that together they're saying, look, God, you are God. I worship you and you're the giver of all good things. And so I'm giving back to you part of what you've given to me in thanksgiving to you. Grain offering is a tribute of thanksgiving or praise in remembrance. The next part of our definition is of an eternal covenant. Of an eternal covenant. God has chosen the Israelites. He's very clear about this over and over in Deuteronomy. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it's just you, Israel. Made a covenant just with you. And he gives this, this interesting detail here. He says, no leaven, no honey, not on, not on the grain offering, but don't forget the salt. No leaven or honey, do not forget the salt. He says three times, don't forget the salt. Why? We get, we get a, a clue in verse 13. The Lord says, you shall not let the salt of the covenant be missing from your grain offering. He links the salt with the covenant, there's a couple of places in the Pentateuch where we, we find the phrase covenant of salt. Now, salt in the ancient world was the primary preservative of food. And there is this, this, this ancient custom among Arabs and Greeks. When they were making a covenant with one another, they would eat salt together. And by that, they were saying to one another, we will preserve this covenant we will keep this covenant. And so the salt required on these offerings is likely serving two, two purposes. First of all, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness to this covenant. God is providing for us. And so by giving back to Him a portion of what He's given to us, we are reminding ourselves and we're acknowledging to God, He has been faithful. That's what we're doing by salting these offerings. A second a second reason for this salt is to remind the offerer, I'm obligated to keep this covenant. I need to be faithful to the Lord as well. Why no leaven and no honey? Because they do the opposite of salt. They, they have a fermenting quality which suggests corruption. So the idea is remove anything that hinders the covenant, maximize what preserves the covenant. And both speak to the intended permanence of this relationship with the Lord. So a grain offering is a tribute of thanksgiving or praise in remembrance of an eternal covenant. The last part of our definition is with a gracious provider God. With a gracious provider God. Again, I've mentioned several times, even as the Lord is giving these instructions, He is, he is feeding the people every day with manna from heaven. When they get to the land, He's going to give them produce from the land. And so this offering, all of it, is directed in praise and thanksgiving to Him. The memorial portion of the offering is offered up in smoke as a fragrant aroma. That the rest of the grain offering is is given to the priests is yet another reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. We don't talk about this very often, but God made a covenant with the priests to take care of them. The priests are almost like a microcosm of Israel. He's taking care of the priests in a special way, even as He's taking care of all of Israel. Listen to Numbers 18, 19. God made a covenant with Levi saying, I'm going to feed you guys. You're not getting an inheritance with the rest of the people in terms of land. You're not going to get land like everybody else. But here's what I'm going to do for you. This is what Yahweh said to Aaron in Numbers 18, 19. 
all the holy contributions, that is, all the offerings that the people are bringing to me, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. So there in Numbers 18, God's making a covenant with the priests. And every time somebody brings one of these grain offerings and the, the, the priest is burning a portion of it, he is recognizing before the Lord, yep, Lord, you've kept your promise. You've provided to me. And here is this portion, this memorial portion recognizing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for providing for me. What a good God you are. What a gracious provider God. And so the whole thing pictures the covenantal provision of a faithful God. So altogether then, this offering is a tribute of thanksgiving or praise in remembrance of an eternal covenant with a gracious provider God. And again, that offerer is saying, you are God and I praise you. All things belong to you. And so I thank you for what you have given to me. Now, very nice, right? But we are... Modern day Gentiles. So what, what, what does this have to do with, with any of us? We are not partakers of the old covenant. Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, emphasizes a gracious salvation in Christ. He notes that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning completely helpless. And he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. You Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God moved to save us, not as a result of our works. It was a gift of God. Further, in verse 10, he says that he created us in Christ Jesus for good works so that we should walk in them. The part that I really want to to show to you begins in verse 11, Ephesians 2.11. Look there with me. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the circumcision, he means the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, now, first of all, consider the condition of the Old Testament Jew at the beginning of the book of Leviticus. We talked about this in our first week. God is speaking to Moses from the tabernacle, indicating we actually have a problem. Man can't go into the tabernacle yet. We've got to fix that. And the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they all represent that God has made a provision for that. He's made a provision for the Jews. So the Jews, they felt their separation, but there's a remedy. We as Gentiles, we are outsider outsiders is what Paul's saying here. You remember that? We we have no claim to the promises made to the Jews. God makes the point again repeatedly to, to Israel. I have chosen you from all the peoples on the face of the earth. His promises in the Old Testament, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Gentiles were, were strangers to the covenants of promise, had no hope. We were without God. Just feel the weight of that 
for a minute. Without God. Some of you were without God not long ago. So it's, it's not at all hard to remember that. Without God, having no hope in the world. What a way to describe that situation. We were far off. Far off from God. Far off from His promises. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul, Paul is saying that, that Christ has brought us, Gentile believers, into a new covenant with the Father. That's the, the next point on, on the notes. Christ has brought us into an eternal covenant with the Father. Christ has brought us into an eternal covenant with the Father. Now let's continue looking in Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself, Christ, is our peace. Who, who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. He means that in the, the, the death of Christ, the, the Old Covenant, which separated us from the Old Testament people of God, the Jews, that covenant has been removed. Why? So that Christ might create in Himself one new man. One new man out of the two. No longer Jew and Gentile, but now one new man, believing Jew and Gentile in one new body, the church. He's talking about the new covenant. Verse 17. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off. He's talking about Gentiles. And peace to those who were near, meaning the Jews. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just as the Old Testament people of God enjoyed this wonderful covenant relationship with God, wherein it was appropriate for them to say, you are God, I worship you, all things belong to you, and I thank you for what you've given to me. All the more we say to Him, You are my God. I worship You. All things belong to You, and I praise You for what You've given to me. How do we enter that covenant? Well, Paul writes in, in verse 8, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. He's very pointed in this passage. It is not by works. You do not do this by obeying things. You, you do this by trusting a person. You trust in, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You, you actually turn away from dead works. 
and you trust in what Jesus has done. So that the, the guilt and sin that you have accumulated over a lifetime have been paid for by Christ. The guilt and sin of all those who trust in Christ is paid for by the shedding of His blood on the cross. And on the basis of that atonement, our sins are forgiven. Now, not only that, but just, just as the partakers of the Old Covenant, they enjoyed this inheritance of the land and the fruit of the land, so also the Lord bestows an inheritance on the partakers of the New Testament. I'm sorry, the, the New Covenant. A, a great passage on this inheritance is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he's writing to Gentiles too. And he writes, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have an inheritance that's being guarded even now. How, how, how's inflation treating you these days? Is, is, your, is your retirement account imperishable? Undefiled, unfading? Listen, brothers and sisters, don't lament that. Let it point you to your real inheritance in heaven. It's being kept for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. There is nothing to worry about because our God who has brought us into an eternal covenant, He's got us covered eternally. The New Testament speaks of our inheritance in two ways. Not in stocks and bonds. It speaks of it in two ways. Inheriting the kingdom of God and eternal life. The kingdom of God and eternal life. And I would suggest that while those are not synonymous, they point to the same reality. Okay? So follow with me here. When we hear the phrase eternal life, we may tend to... We actually minimize that to... Well, eternal life just means we live forever. That may or may not be your idea of a good time. That is not my idea of a good time. Would anybody agree with that? Maybe I'm alone. Yes, thank you, brother. Anthony agrees. I don't want to just live for a long time. When Jesus talks about eternal life, now I get excited about that because Jesus defines eternal life for us in John 17, 3. In his high priestly prayer, he, sa- prayer, he says this. This is eternal life. He's saying this to the Father. This is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now we're talking. That's eternal life. Living forever, just living forever without God, that's the definition of hell. I want the eternal life that Jesus is talking about. Now, that's an inheritance. The other way that the New Testament talks about our inheritance is this inheriting the kingdom of God. And what is that? Well, it's essentially, it's inheriting God's reign. It's not my reign. It's His reign. He is reigning here in reality on the earth, all of His enemies vanquished. And as we've noted in the past, there's a sense in which the kingdom is present now and another sense in which it's a future reality. won't go into all of that, but... 
We have that inheritance even now in that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee. We read about that in Ephesians 1.14 where Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the, the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God essentially saying, look, th- this is so certainly yours. This future kingdom of God and this future reality of knowing me fully, seeing me, being with me. This is so certainly yours that I'm planting my very spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit does amazing things. Fostering fellowship between us and the Father in Christ even now. And making us more like Christ even now as we look forward to the day when we will be with the Father and we will be completely like Christ. What an inheritance. What an inheritance. Now, what then corresponds or what might correspond to this tribute offering in the new covenant life? Well, the final point in your notes is this. Life in Christ calls for a lifestyle of Gratitude and praise. It calls for a lifestyle of gratitude and praise. The author of Hebrews notes this in chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. He writes, therefore, he's he's got this kingdom thing on the mind. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Praise and gratitude is the appropriate response to the blessing of our inheriting this kingdom where we will eternally know God perfectly. Yet, some of us, if we're being honest, and I'm being honest, some of us, we struggle with seasons. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's even right now. We struggle with seasons of a, a lack of gratitude in hearts that are just not motivated to worship. We do. And so what, what, what do we do? I think the book of Hebrews, which I have just read, who, where he advocates praise and worship, Well, he's assuming a few things that would remedy that lack of thanksgiving and lack of praise. And I want to give you a few of these things. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. First of all, we should be mindful of what we've given in Christ. The author of Hebrews has just spent 11 plus chapters talking about these blessings that we've been given in Christ. Now, if if we're never thinking about what has been done for us in Christ, if we're never thinking about what we've been given, if we never revel in the new covenant, if we never revel in our inheritance, it is no wonder that we are unmotivated to worship. It is no wonder that we have no sense of gratitude. When we do fill our minds with everything that's going wrong, well, then it's no wonder that we fill our minds with grumbling, which we find in the people of Israel in Numbers and throughout the Pentateuch, actually. It's quite easy 
for us to get into a devotional habit of somewhat mindlessly reading the Scriptures, somewhat mindlessly praying. But, but what if we were purposeful in our Scripture reading? What if as we opened our Bibles, no matter where we are in our Bible reading plan or, or one-to-one reading with whomever, what if as we're doing that, we're asking ourselves the question, in what way does this passage pertain to what has been done by this Almighty God for me in Christ? What does this passage have to do with my journey from Being far away from God to near to God in Christ. What if we were more purposeful in our reading? We're looking specifically to meditate on God's blessings in our Scripture reading. Understanding that, 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 that He is God and all things belong to Him. He's in no obligated, no way obligated to save us, bless us, give us His Son or Himself. And yet He has. It's a magnificent wonder. All that we are and have belong to Him. What if we were targeted in our thinking as we're reading? The second thing that we might do if we are troubled in our thanksgiving and worship is that having meditated on these things, we, we, we should consciously, intentionally enter into worship in response. In other words, don't wait for it to happen, but do it intentionally. And there are several ways of doing this, several ways of doing this. So sub-points here. First of all, we do this through prayer. First of all, praise the Lord in prayer. Praise the Lord in prayer. When we are lacking in our thanksgiving and praise, we may in our prayer lives find ourselves doing two things, strictly petition and grumbling. Now, the Lord calls us to petition. He calls us to ask for things. He wants to hear our requests. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should praise and give thanksgiving. So praise the Lord in prayer. Praise Him as our great covenant God. Extol His character as this great, generous creator and sustainer and saving God. Praise Him by praying the Scriptures back to Him. There's plenty of that all across the canon. Thank Him specifically for what He has given to us in Christ, all the blessings and salvation. There's a laundry list of these things in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul refers to these things as all the blessings in the heavenly places, and then he starts to list them. Predestination, election, adoption in Christ, redemption, sealing of the Holy Spirit. Just walk through there and thank Him for all of those things. We can then move to more temporal blessings. James says that every good thing, every good thing comes to us from the Father of lights. Thank Him for all those things. And then as you pray, thanking the Lord for those things, offer them back to Him, recognizing Him as the source. And say, Lord, how how can you use these things that you've given to me? I put them in your hands. Another way that we can worship Him, intentionally enter into worship, is through Offering ourselves as living sacrifices. We've, we've already noted this in, in past weeks from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. There Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now what Paul has in mind as he writes that is acts of obedience of all kinds, but, but, but done with an attitude of praise to God. All right? So acts of obedience done with praise. 
So, so what we have in mind then is engaging in the hard work of sanctification as an act of worship. Not, not fleshly hard work, but spirit-empowered. So think about this. Where in your life are you not like Christ? I'm trusting that we can all identify something. Where in your life are you not like Jesus? Do you have a self-control problem? Do you, do you, do you have an anger problem? Are you sinfully angry? Do, are, are you a bad listener? Do you tend to monopolize conversations and therefore demonstrate that you're, that you're not loving people in conversation? Don't just let that go, but tackle that with the power of the Holy Spirit. Tackle that as an act of worship. And if you don't know how, that, that's not a problem. Get on our website on the sign-ups page and request coffee with a counselor, and we will show you how to tackle that thing as an act of worship. A third way to intentionally engage in, in worship is, is through mindful, formal worship here on Sunday mornings. Mindful, formal worship on Sunday mornings. Our, our pastors have written on this on the blog several times and encourage you to get on there and, and look, for those, look for those posts. They're very helpful. But what, what, we're, what we're talking about here is coming here on Sunday mornings with our minds and hearts prepared. Get up early enough on a Sunday morning, not, not just early enough to you know, run a brush through the hair and probably possibly a, a brush through the teeth and just get here just in time. But get up early enough to pray for your own heart and pray for the service. Pray for the children's teachers. Pray for the musicians. Pray for the pastors. Get ready to interact with other people for God's pleasure. Think about the words that you're singing and, and their truth. Their truth in your life. Their truth in the lives of those around you. Consciously sing them to the Lord. As, as people are praying in the service, listen to their prayers and agree with those prayers in your heart. As the announcements being given. Listen to those announcements prayerfully. Lord, how would you have me to use your time and your resources to take advantage of these opportunities to engage with your people for your glory? Consider the preaching of the word and the, and the attention that you pay to it as an act of worship. Engage your heart and mind as the word is being preached and, and assume every time the word is preached that the Lord has something for you to believe, to love, to do. And that you are going to engage in those things as an act of worship. Give financially, believing that just as the priests were supported through the grain offerings, so gospel ministry is supported through your gifts to the Lord. Consider every part of the service an act of saying to the Lord, You are God, and I worship you, and everything belongs to you. And I give thanks to you for everything that you have given to me. May our lives, our thoughts, our prayers, our interactions with one another be a fragrant aroma to the Lord, pleasing to Him. Tributes of thanksgiving in remembrance of this eternal covenant with a gracious provider, God. In the coming moments, we're going to share a moment of, of silent reflection. 
And may we each consider how the Lord would have us to respond to these things. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that you would grant us to be countercultural in the best sense, in that we worship you alone, recognize you as the only one worthy of worship, that we recognize you as the giver of all good things, and that we are eager to give to you what is due you in recognition of who you are and what you have done. We pray, Father, that these impulses to worship and to give thanks, that they would be expressed in ways appropriate to this new covenant. We pray that in the coming moments, your Holy Spirit would minister to each one of us, move us each specifically, in ways appropriate to our lives and shortcomings. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, for the shedding of his blood that we might be brought into this covenant. We thank you for how you have provided for us eternally an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Pray in Christ's name.